listener, and welcome back to Hossman FC. I'm Nicola Volpi, this is an LIP production. And on this episode, you will hear my recent interview with Chris Lee, a football historian, where we discussed, amongst other things, the history of football and fascism. I found the conversation very enlightening. I learned a lot. We often think politics and sport are separate. In fact, they never really have been. Uh, and we also, you know, we routinely do weekly roundups discussing Bard and uh, all of these types of things. Uh, rarely do we delve into the history of the game uh, to such depths. Uh, so it was a very refreshing conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Before we dive into that, remember, you can always write us, lostinpostulation at gmail.com. Follow us on any of the socials, uh, Lost in Postulation. If you like what you're hearing, a rating and review really helps to grow the podcast. While you're at it, you might as well, if you haven't already, check out our flagship podcast, Lost in Postulation, which explores the intersection of pop culture and the mundanity of daily life. I'm hosting that together with Neil Fitzpatrick. On both of these podcasts, uh, part of the LIP network, we are having a variety of guests coming on uh, heading into the new year. So it's a great time to join us on the journey. And without further ado, here's my interview with Chris Lee. There is a belief we often hold to about football providing an escape from the day-to-day. And for many of us, this holds true. No matter what else happens, we can always count on the beautiful game. Where this belief runs into trouble and verges into a mythical land akin to Narnia, however, is when we claim football provides an escape from everything. In particular, politics. Football and politics have been intertwined since the founding of the game and continue to do so today. In many instances, this intersection is where the waters start to get murky and the beautiful game becomes a bit uglier. My guest today is a football historian, or as close to such a thing as there can be, who has studied the intersection of football and politics. Chris Lee is the editor of Outside Right, a football travel history and culture website dedicated to the off-pitch story of football, the exact type of narrative content we attempt to dive into here at Hossman FC. Chris has written two books about the history of football, Origin Stories, The Pioneers Who Took Football to the World, and more recently, The Defiant, a history of football against fascism. Chris Lee, welcome to the podcast. Oh, hi, Nicholas. Thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, total pleasure. And Chris, I've been I've been reading on Outside Right for a few months now, really caught my attention. I, I dove deep into, uh, into some of your podcast episodes as well. Very refreshing, the angle you take in terms of covering the game with this, this off-pitch focus. <clears throat> when did that really start for you? When did you start to cultivate that interest? Um, well, by by day, I'm a sort of digital marketing person. <laughs> so this is very much a project on the side. Um, it goes way back to the 90s, actually, when I was at university. And I did a European studies degree with Spanish. Uh, I went to university in Madrid. <clears throat> and I um, um, well, we had to pick a dissertation. A lot of my colleagues, my peers were doing things like mm, fishing policy in, uh, uh, you know, and how that impacts Galicia and all, the, you know, all these sort of things like this. And I had to pick one. I said, well, about sports and politics, I've like football and politics and regional identity in Spain. And luckily, my course tutor did bat for me on that one and said, yeah, look, um, you know, I think there is legs in this. You know, there's, there's scope to do this. Um, this topic is in Spain. It is really political. It's not in the UK, really, apart from maybe Rangers Celtic, possibly. Well, yes, definitely. But I mean, apart from that, football is apolitical. So um, it was, you know, a point of difference, really quite interesting. So I did that in the 90s. Uh, and this was when the only book in English that was written about football and politics was probably Simon Cooper's Football Against the Enemy. Sure. Uh, I think that's about the only book at that time that was in English. There was stuff in Spanish, which was good. Interview people from Marca and Sport, which are the local kind of Madrid and Barcelona-based sports papers. So that was great. Uh, did, you know, that's fine. I sort of parked it for a long time. And I found myself traveling a lot with work. Um, and I, when I did kind of go around the place, I was like, you know, oh, I'm in Amsterdam. I'll go and see Ajax uh, or get a train down and see like Royal Antwerp, you know. So it was like I found myself doing a lot more ground hopping. Um, obviously done loads when I was in Spain, but like, and I was actually, you know what, this is totally different from what I'm used to. Why is it that Belgian fans are singing in, in English as well as, you know, French or Flemish or whatever it happened to be. And um I sort of like thought about more about resurrecting the sort of the cultural stuff. And so that's how I ended up setting up outside right, pretty much just as a ground hopping diary, dug deeper into social stuff. And then that, that obviously that led to the book, which is like the first one, Origin Stories, which is about like how the game got started. 
in various different countries. There's chapters on Italy, of course, and there's chapters which came very late to the party. Is um, something we may cover when we talk about Italy in more depth and Mussolini and stuff. Um, but then um, the defiant is more of a lo lockdown project, so that's something that spun out. That is a lot of coverage of you know football and the far right, for example. And obviously in Italy, you'll be familiar with the fact that many of the ultra groups are of that leaning. Mm -hmm. So I was really interested so, yeah. in the, the contrary view. And then the more I dug deeper, the more I realized there's actually probably 75,000 words in this. So um, I, I also saw that it was the, would have been the um, centenary of Mussolini's March on Rome in October, 2022 mm -hmm. from 1922. So I thought, you know what, if I get my skates on, I can get that. I can get this book out in time. Um, and that's what I did. So that was my kind of lockdown project. And then I'm working on a third, which I'm keeping under wraps just for now. Um, and then after that, I don't know yet, to be honest. So okay. maybe leave it a three. <laughs> Great. Well, we'll look forward to, to learning more about that maybe on a, on a future episode. Um, mm -hmm. When we talk about The Defiant, A History of Football Against Fascism, what was the the process of writing that? Like you said, you know, all of a sudden you're like, okay, there could be 75,000 words in this, but hmm. was there a wealth of knowledge within that niche of football against fascism to dive into? Uh, were people open enough to, to discussing mm. it? How'd you find that? Oh, from the research point of view, um, do you know what? A lot of it, there's a lot of... In studies going into this internationally so there's like schools of thought i mean universities and various things especially in eastern europe which obviously you can imagine it's like quite a lot of scope for these are sociologists and people like that and that are studying it more than anything there's a lot been written on Mussolini, and that's why the first chapter is on italy because he is the original um kind of fascist dictator and he's the first person that really politicizes football or i'll start, start against the first person that really used football strategically for as a political tool um which i'm sure we'll cover <clears throat> but um there's lots on him and uh, so Italy was quite an open goal but the more you sort of look around there's stuff about Italy that people didn't know necessarily so as you know or were, wasn't given widespread attention so like partisans I found a book in Italian which kind of <laughs> I kind of speak a little bit of um as well so it's kind of like I it's kind of just it's quite handy you've got these translated things on Kindle you can actually just like do chunks and see what the translation is, you know, so that helps as well. So get a gist of what it is just by reading it and then actually just confirm that with some translation. <laughs> but it's like, um, uh, likewise, I think it's a Catalan book as well that was really useful. So yeah, I mean, the more you dig into it, it there's lots of stuff being written locally. So Greek partisans, like a Greek American helped me um, translate some things. And so it's like, you know, it's um, highlighted some stories that he knew from word of mouth. So it's just kind of, I mean, this is where Twitter came in really handy, actually. Um, I know a lot of people are like, losing faith in the network and i understand why that is but I, I find it invaluable for research unfortunately okay well that's great and i think you know you start the book first chapter uh of course on italy i think no better place mm. you know to kind of start than what in in essence the birthplace of modern day fascism and when we look at city a today right um mm. city a as a concept as a creation very much came about uh, in the Mussolini era as as a tool, uh, in a sense, to to advance Italian national identity, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, if we just dial back even further, for, like you, you alluded to in your introduction, football's always been political. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'd say that, well, maybe in Britain, when it started England and Scotland, it was more sociological. So it's like the gentlemen, the upper classes had the, had the game and then the working classes took it off them. Pivotal moments like the 1883 cup, FA Cup final when working class Blackburn Olympic, which no longer exists, mm -hmm. uh, beat the old Etonians. And, um, the English game, for, the Netflix series, right? Yeah, well, so that was a variation of that that particular final. Um, <clears throat> the I've got a podcast on that. If anyone wants to hear about that, go over to Outside Right and look for um, Blackburn Olympic. The um, But the that, uh, it's first around that period in Ireland where it first like becomes political, where there's clear differentiation between imported games, like English games, uh, uh, like football, rugby, hockey, cricket, and kind of local games like hurling and Gaelic football. And so this is where the Gaelic Athletic Association comes around, the GAA, and that's where they're sort of defending local sports against the foreign ones. And it's kind of this is where football first gets politicized, really, um, and kind of part of national awakening. That's that. We see that also in places like Uruguay and Egypt and, and India as well, up to 1920s, where it's almost like it's a platform, right, to kick against either the upper classes, you know, the ruling classes, the people that own the factories and the railways, or um, imperial kind of overlords at the time. So British, French, whoever it happened to be. Um, so it's kind of like a level playing field. Um, but then, in, like you said, in the 1920s, it's before then, Italy weren't very good at all at football, as you know. Um, uh, it came very late to it. I think Genoa 
say they were Italy's oldest club, Genoa says 18, 1893 on the badge. Actually, it was only in 1897 they actually started playing football. So they were doing athletic and cricket before that. Um, so you don't get a tournament until you know that sort of late 18th, late 19th century period, and, and the emergence of new clubs like Juventus and stuff. So um, it's it's kind of nascent, but it's getting obviously popular. And um, Mussolini comes in; he's got no interest in it personally, uh, but he sees the value of it. Ricardo um, di Viareggio, which, you, as you know, um, and for those of your listeners who don't, it was kind of like a, a charter to set out the plan of, of, of Italian football and how that can help unify a country. It's only about what, 60 years old at this point in the early 1920s. Um, so, as you know, there's a campanilismo is the thing, isn't it? You're all into your regions and, and, and your local towns. And so local he was trying tower to. Bell. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's what it is. So it's basically this loyalty to your lo- lo- local area, which is why you get really fierce rivalries, don't you? Like Pisa, Livorno, and things like that. Absolutely. Um, but even though they're both within Tuscany, but the um, so he's trying to unify it with with Serie A and the Coppa Italia. So these are first like attempts at a national tournament, right? Um, and that's where he sort of puts lots of money and effort into um, managing the game at a local level, banning foreign players, recruiting foreign players of Italian descent, the Oriundi or Rimpatriati, the repatriated effectively, so Argentines like Luis Monte, who played in the 1930 Cup, mm-hmm. um, World Cup final, and ends up putting on the Azzurro shirt. And um, so Italy get good at, in, at international level. And bear in mind, just for context, um, England and Scotland, who possibly arguably the strongest teams in the world at this point, mm-hmm. don't take part in the FIFA tournaments Correct. and probably probably kick themselves because they, if they had have done, it would have been never had a bit more in the trophy cabinet. But the um, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Italy uh, wins nineteen thirty four World Cup. Slight asterisks around that in terms of um, you know was their involvement and leaning on referees and things. There's lots of controversy around that. But there's no doubt at amateur level when they go to the Olympics in 1936 in Berlin, mm-hmm. uh, win gold there, and then they defend successfully uh, the World Cup in 1938. But by the time the 1938 comes around in France, there's a big Italian diaspora and Spanish diaspora fleeing the Spanish Civil War, which is you know Mussolini sponsoring Franco in that part and helping bomb places like Guernica, Barcelona, places like that. So there's a big diaspora that's complaining about that um, of protesting against the Italian national team and they get jeered and booed and things like that. So um, this is where you see football against fascism kind of start really with the with the Ita- um, Italian sort of national side and, and club sides playing away and um, playing abroad in the 1930s. And there's instances there, I think you give the example in the 1938 World Cup where Italy at one point shows up instead of, you know, a standard away kit playing in black shirts yep yep that's the black shirts that they were using at the olympics in 1936 um that's because they clashed with france and france were blue mm-hmm. so they, they tossed a coin um that's the only time the Azzurri have, have played in, in black uh, haven't done it since and you know when as, as an italian coming up in an italian family etc you know you always hear about the previous teams having won the world mm. cups it's 34, it's 38, then it's it's 82 in Spain. Very mm. little is mentioned around the political context around it within mm. Italy when you hear about it, right? And then yep. you hear about the great uh, leaders, the managers that, that led to these victories, right? And you hear mm. about Pozzo, you hear about Berzot, now more recently, of course, about mm. Marcello Lippi. And there's not much about Pozzo other than discussing, you know, the fact that he won these two World Cups. Mm-hmm. Was I, I get a bit of sense reading your first chapter that Vittorio Pozzo was very much aware of the political context around him. Mm-hmm. Do we know whether he was himself a fascist sympathizer or not? Um, I don't know, to be honest. I've seen a, a bit written about him. There's not much in English. I think he right. would make a great, great biography, actually. Um, Pozzo was manager for a very long time. I think he started as a journalist, didn't he? And then... Mm-hmm. Uh, he was still going. He still had to identify Il Grande Torino side, didn't he? Unfortunately, in 1949, he had to identify them after the Supergo air crash. Right. And so he, because so he, you know, his 20, 25 year, whatever it was, stint as manager of the national side. Um, but in that 1934, that first match, I think against Norway, when they were getting booed and jeered, and they had, they held the Roman salute as it was held uh, called during the um, singing of the Giovanella, was it Giovanella? Giovanetta, Giovanetta, yeah. Giovanetta, the fascist anthem. Um, and he made, they were getting booed and jeered and he made them 
hold that salute for a long time, didn't he? More or less to sort of say we're not intimidated and we're going to you know, play on. They did scrape past Norway. But, I, I mean, even the player level, they're known to be leftist-leaning players, like the goalkeeper, wasn't it? Um, he he was you know known to be left, but still, even Mussolini acknowledged that with in jest with him and it, it um, didn't seem to impact his career. So I don't think there was any... Okay. I don't know how much the politics actually sifted into the individuals within the team. Right, right. It was more like on a macro propaganda level as a as a tool that national team uh, in a way for Mussolini to to advance yeah. the Italian interest, right? And I think just just taking a step back, I think what's very interesting for our listeners is that you know in that time he really seeks to to Italianize uh, the game, right? Changes the name mm. from football to calcio. Mm. So actually, I think in Western Europe perhaps the only country that doesn't have a trans a direct translation of football any longer it's called culture which means kick mm-hmm. um, and then something very interesting i think for our listeners he creates ice roma right because mm-hmm. a merger of various clubs he wants a strong club in in every big city right mm-hmm. lazio does not join in i want you to to <laughs> delve in on this a bit because our listeners will think well lazio that's the far right fascist mussolini aligned club why why weren't they a part of this merger? Were they still seen as were they already seen as a fascist club then, or not? Has that developed with their fan culture? Context: um, All clubs had some kind of representation of the you know political will kind of on their mm-hmm. thing. So I don't think you can say anyone was either more or not. Um, however, no, it wasn't a benevolent act. They just didn't want to be part of it. And I think that there was a high-ranking official who was chairman of Lazio decided they didn't want to be part of this because there's three other clubs that made that thing. And the Lazio is the oldest Roman club. Yeah. Um, so they've got that heritage already in that sort of legacy, whereas the others probably younger and thought, yeah, why not? Let's go for it. So Lazio could compete in its own right, really. The other one is obviously Fiorentina. That's um, founded in 1926 out of a merger. And Fiorentina is the interesting one because then they got the stadium built. Yeah, Temio Franchi, which if you've not been to it, is, is phenomenal. It's one of those times. great Art yeah. Deco stadiums. Yeah. And um, they, when they Start first started, they were named after a guy called um, Berta, who was a fascist, had been thrown off a bridge in Florence by communists. Mm. And um, one of the um, uh, iconic photos of it is not even quite finished. It's like the Death Star in the, at the end of at the start of Return of the Jedi. It's not quite finished. There's all this construction work going on. Yeah. But they launched it with a, a game against Admira of, of Vienna. Um, in 1931, and they were made to hold the Roman salute. But there's one guy who, in a very famous photograph, who's not doing that, and his name is um, Bruno Neri, who goes on to die fighting the partisans, who is in in the, in the Fiorentina team in that point. So, just goes to show, within even within the Italian game, there was they were politically aware people who were willing to not go along with the the party line, so to speak. So, I, I, in the book, I sort of delve into those those players as well. Yeah, very interesting. And I know we have a contingent of Fiorentina supporters uh, that, that are listeners to the podcast, including my father. So they'll appreciate right. a, a name drop of their club, which which they don't get so often nowadays. Um, <laughs> That's my, my team in Italy as well. Oh, so fantastic. Big, big uh, Stadio Artemio Franchi, actually funny that in every Italian passport, it was considered such an architectural you know, masterpiece that mm. I think about 30 pages in of an Italian passport uh, it's one of the monuments that's uh, that's shown no. there. Um, Who is it? Yeah, which is funny that's... because today it really it's it's totally out of date. Mm. But there's a, there's some amazing stadiums from that era, and it's quite handy that it comes comes in with that sort of art. I would say it's art deco, but it's not actually. It's something else in Italy, isn't it? Art mm. something. Uh, I can't remember. So it's like calls back to the sort of Roman era, but it looks like art deco because Art Nouveau because it's kind of made in the 20s and 30s. But that Como have one, Livorno have one. Bologna, of course, phenomenal stadium. The Lara. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, some wonderful stadiums in around Italy built in that time. Yeah. And so we we come forward, you know, and, and during that war period, uh, talk about the, the partisans' role. Uh, mm. How does football mix into that? Um, well, quite a lot. I mean, Italy's war of two halves, really, um, obviously starts on the... Um, the Axis side, so with with Nazi Germany, or they just wait. Mussolini waits until um, till France has fallen before he sort of militarily sides with with the Nazis in Germany. However, um, <laughs> it goes wrong from the off right from the start. So there's um, you know it's this currently well, at this point the start of the war is occupying Croatia and Albania, um, and obviously has wars in Abyssinia or Ethiopia and Libya as well. And so it's kind of um, um, kind of stretched, shall we say. And uh, the 
football is kind of in 1943 when the Allies have kind of made their way up to Rome. It's this kind of the northern part, uh, the Republic of Salo, as it became known, Mussolini kind of escapes to there and, and is in charge of that northern part, which the Nazis are still in control of. And the South is occupied by the Allies, the Americans, Brits, etc., moving north. And um, the a, a lot of the footballs have kind of that kind of when Italy switches in 1943 um, officially uh, kind of go to go up to the hills, basically and join the partisans. <laughs> that happens quite a lot. I mean, even before that, they were doing like little kind of acts of um, you know kind of like strikes and things like that. But um, yeah, I mean, north of the um, kind of round, I guess, of Bologna sort of area, isn't it? Florence, Tuscany, that sort of area, right in the middle of the boot. You kind of go north of there. That's where a lot of the fighting is happening in the hills. And so, yeah, I mean, there's five stadiums I counted out of, um, you know, in, in, in Italian football that are named after partisans um, or kind of people who died as a result of the of Nazi oppressions, one of which is Carlo Castellani, um, who was the leading scorer for Empoli. And their stadium's named after him. And... Um, he it was actually their, his father who was um, the Nazis were after, and they kind of knocked on the door in the middle of the night. And um, he said, "He said, oh, I'll, I'll go and I'll sort this out because his dad wasn't there, or whatever." And um, he went down the police station, um, and thinking it was just be a, a misunderstanding. We never went home because he, he got kind of taken off to Melthausen, which is this infamous work camp where you're kind of dead within days, basically. So um, yeah, he's 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 uh, his legacy is marked in the name of the stadium. There's various others. There's there's one, um, Sazzana, which is kind of near La Spezia, I think, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's um, at the beginning of Liguria, close to, to the Tuscan border on the on the coast. Yeah, yeah. and he, he, their goalkeeper, um, kind of one of two other players, I think Nero might have been the other one, who kind of, I discovered, had died by kind of basically just holding off a, a like a fascist assault with a you know, machine gun, buying their colleagues time to run away, basically. So they kind of like sacrifice themselves effectively just to buy their their comrades some time to get away. So he's named after, you know, his grand's named after him as well. Bruno Neri's um, hometown um, club is, is, is named, stadium's named after him as well. So there's kind of, that's how um, they're being marked. So definitely being remembered. And as we move, you know, as we move forward that with Italy, where, you know, and as we've seen with the recent political environment where fascism has mm. never become a taboo thing as it has in many other European countries, right? Where we have, for example, an openly fascist Paolo Di Cagno being the main pundit about English football on, on Italian TV. Is he? Yeah, uh, still to this day. That's a, um, We have, you know, fan sections like Lazio. We hear a lot about the right side of things. Mm. What about how has the you know fight against fascism on the stands with you know the more progressive yeah. end uh, been going nowadays well, it's quite interesting you mentioned that because obviously um within the italian context as well as aside from the partisans of the mussolini era um we talk about the ultras mm-hmm. emerging results with the ultra culture starts in italy in many ways it's brought over f- from well it's a mixture it's brought over to italy from y- yugoslavia or croatia um the croatian part of what was yugoslavia when they went to the World Cup in 1950, and he brought back, you know, saw how the Brazilians, or Torcida, or as they can know, um, fan groups were, you know, adding lots of TIFO and, and shouting, singing. And then they mixed that with sort of the hooligan culture that was emerging in England in the 60s. And that also mixed with the years of lead, you know, at the end of the Italian economic miracle uh, in the 60s, 70s. So a lot of um, Crudevere, um, you know, the, the stands, a lot of the ultras were actually left wing to start with. Uh, and it kind of changed during the 70s and 80s and became a lot of right-wing stuff, but there's some that are still left-wing. So Livorno, famously so. Um, My grandfather's club, he used to play there. Uh, oh, did yeah, he? Back in, right. until he got a knee injury very young, but yeah, Livorno. Mm. All right. Yeah, I mean, they go like way beyond. I mean, I say this at the beginning, I'm, I'm not particularly, I'm not like massively left-wing, so I say, I'm a bit sort of centre-left, but mm-hmm. mildly. So they go big on communism and things like that. Have, like you won't find me endorsing pictures of Stalin anytime soon but I'm just saying like um that's that's how far they go but there's also there's other there's you know there's I, I covered a man, number of modern clubs have come up like Lebowski which is in um Florence you've heard of those guys and there's Santabreos in Milan which is a the first migrant forward uh, some migrant team that's re- registered with the Italian FA, the FIGC, and in Naples, Squadra Grad, which is um, 
kind of some guys that got disaffected with Na uh, Napoli and um, you know they get into some scrapes as I cover in my book with um, you know um, right wing ultras. So it's kind of yeah, it's just uh, it's really interesting how football as a platform, even at that very low level, you know, when you're talking about a crowd of hundreds of people rather than thousands, it's still can get a bit political you know yeah and speaking of that you know and moving across the the sea to spain uh mm. speaking of you know finding safety in a way within a stadium with so many people and so many different regional identities what mm. does this look like in spain where ultimately the civil war it leads to franco being in power for basically much longer than any other mm. far-right leader in europe uh yes second only to to Salazar next yes. door in Portugal, which I'm sure we'll probably come to because it's interesting um, there as well. But yeah, so just for those who are not familiar, the Spanish Civil War is very much the sort of prelude to World War Two. So this is where the um, Axis kind of and and the communists are both trying out their new weaponry uh, goes from 1936 to 39. The democratically elected re um, Republicans lose to the nationalists led by General Francisco Franco. He basically runs the show until 1975 when he dies and during that period um uh everyone probably knows that spain kind of a bit like AC gets good at football <laughs> <laughs> kind of uh, at club level and international level as well so it's kind of um it becomes a political platform a difference being between franco and mussolini franco actually liked football mm -hmm. he enjoyed it um there's lots of people who feel he is a, a fan of Real Madrid. I don't, I think we have to have some nuance around Madrid, which we may well cover during this period. We've but yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's do that later on, but just for Spain is the perfect canvas for um, political football in many ways. Cause obviously whenever you have a football club, it's like the flag of your region or your town uh, or your people, or your language mm. in the case of Spain, which have 17 autonomous regions and various different languages, including obviously Castellano, the, the main one. Um, Catalan, Valencia, Gallego, um, Euskera, um, you know, the Basque language. So mm -hmm. there's loads of different like languages going on within this one sort of peninsula and um, lots of different identities within that. And, you know, obviously the famous one is, is FC Barcelona, which is the, you know, the, the most potent club in, in Catalonia at that point as well. Uh, and obviously athletic club de Bilbao, which is the most um, potent Basque club at that time. And the difference between Barcelona, which is international founded, founded by a Swiss man with, with some English backing. From Basel, uh, I believe, right? Because it's the same correct. colors and emblem as the Basel kit. Yep, yep, yep. similar colors, although there's some debate around where those colors came from. Mm. Um, but then you've also got um, Athletic Club, which had, since 1912 had a Cantera system where they only played Basque-born or Basque-associated players, which they still do to this day. And neither, neither, neither them, uh, Barcelona or Real Madrid, have ever been relegated from La Liga since its foundation in 1929. In fact, even the Copa de la Coronación, which is the very first iteration of the of a Spanish football tournament, they're all present in some form. Um, and so they, they are the three that have been there since the beginning. And of course, they all, in theory, represent the three different areas, the Castile, you know, the centre, Madrid, Barcelona of, of Catalonia and Athletic Club of, 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 of the Basque country. So um, they're all kind of in their own rights, this kind of like flag bearer. But we have to have some context between that. It's similar to Italy. There was a member of the uh, Falanque, which is the Francoist party on the boards so at these clubs, keep an eye on them. And, you know, they, we have to be sort of really taking nuanced approaches to what their politics were. So what they, the club's politics may have been different to the fans' politics, we say. But they, yeah, it's a lot harder when, when you're being, your language is being suppressed and your language, you know, your street name is being changed, um, Castilianized, should we say. Um, but you're a lot safer speaking Catalan in, in a new camp with 120,000 than you, and, or, or the San Mames speaking Basque with 60,000 other, you know, um, Basque people. So you, you can get, you won't be arrested right. <laughs> for, for doing that. So it's, it's a, yeah, it's a way to kick against the center. But just on the Madrid thing, I just want everyone to know that it's, it is very much a take a nuanced approach to Madrid. It's the club at the center. It started as, um, as Madrid Football Club, very much Anglophile, founded by students, Spanish students in 1902. And um, so it's just off the, off the upper classes, should we say, gets the Royal, Royal Charter of the Real uh, from King Alfonso XIII in 1920. So it's got that Royal Association, but then they're not unique in that. Lots of clubs in Spain have got the Real right. patronage. Um, Even in the Basque country, like Real Sociedad. Yeah, right? Real Sociedad, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. And then they are known as La Real. Mm -hmm. um, so when people say Real, I really don't like, you should call them Madrid. Yeah. And then you separate from Sociedad. But anyway, the um, 1931 there, 
the guy who announces the Spanish uh, Republic is a guy called Rafael Sanchez Guerra, who, who uh, he, so he's a leftist politician. He announces it at the post office in, in Madrid, which is that wonderful white building at Cibeles, which everyone's probably seen, which is now mm-hmm. town hall. Um, um, he then goes on to become president of Real Madrid, having won a uh, uh, kind of vote against a certain Santiago Bernabéu, former striker of in the 20s and um so he actually and then they dropped the real so he becomes madrid during the time of the republics so obviously they got rid of the monarchy at this point mm-hmm. this is the lead up to the well um to the second yeah the spanish civil war so 1931 36 period um so they are the club of, if, if anything during the civil war then madrid's under siege for three years the chamartin stadium as it was in that point they've been dismantled and they're used as barricades to defend madrid from the francoists and then mm. after the war madrid doesn't win the league again between 19 19- Whenever it was 36, I think they won the, the last Copa del Rey before the hostilities broke out. And then um, they didn't win the league until the 1950s. So they're rebuilding um, under Santiago Bernabéu, who's now in charge, who was a nationalist. So the so there's, that, there's this, the rise of Madrid itself um, and the sort of modern perception of it comes around because they are rebuilt. They've got this new stadium. They get the success at the same time as European football starts. So they're getting to the European Cup. And they start, they win the first five, and so it becomes useful to the regime as an ambassador. Bear in mind, Spain is totally isolated at this point internationally. They weren't allowed to join the United Nations on this foundation, because so they still got a fascist dictatorship, as has uh, I think Portugal and I think Peron in Argentina and things like that. So they weren't kind of oh, that's not you know, um, I don't describe them as fascists, but you know what I mean, populist, theoretically yeah. populist. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of um, the they're very much isolated but they become useful to the americans as a place for bases they open up to tourism that's when you get things like benedorm being a lovely fishing village right. and now suddenly it's like a huge great metropolis um, so it's like this this is where spain gets good they win they win the 1964 european championship and that's useful to them even little victories like 1950 beat england in brazil in the world cup and they he has a giant you know has a go about gibraltar and things like that so there's he's always politicizing football Frank, for some ends, wouldn't refuse to let the team play the Soviet Union in 1960, right. just in case they lost, um, because obviously they're communists. Um, and this goes on right until the 70s. And then the, when he dies, it's, there's a big period of uncertainties. Of, you know, the king returns and stabilizes. And I always say you can tell, tell the history of Spain through its the name of its national cup competitions. So I've already mentioned this. This is what we call the, the Copa del Rey, the, the King's Cup, because right. it's a monarchy. It starts as a Copa del Coronación, which is the Coronation Cup, because Alfonso XIII comes on, it becomes a Copa del Rey. And then during the uh, the Spanish Republic, it's 1930s, it's the Cup of the President of the Spanish Republic. Mm. So I won't, you know, Copa del... Mouthful. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then it becomes, the, there's this, tournament that isn't recognized yet by the Spanish FA called the Free Spain Cup, which Levante win because Barcelona pull out and go to Mexico. It's another great story about like, you know, what happened, how they survived during the Civil War. Mm. Them and Athletic Club, they disappear um, to sort of tour and, you know, become like ambassadors for their region. And then it comes back to the, it comes to the Copa del Generalismo, so the very, what Franco called himself, right. the, the very big, very big general. Yeah. And then it becomes Copa del Rey again when the king comes back in the 70s. Uh, and there's this great moment in the Basque Derby in 1976, so less than a year, no, just over a year actually, just December 76, when between Real Sociedad and Athletic Club at Atocha Stadium in, in, in San Sebastian, where they, all the flags, the regional flags have been sort of allowed again apart from the Icorinha, which is the flag of the Basque country, which people may know, it's kind of like the Union Jack, but with green, red, and white, and it's, um, and it's, they one of the player's sisters sews it, and they sort of like smuggle it in, and then they carry it onto the pitch just to test the waters and see if they could, will be arrested in this post-Francoist era, and the police don't know what to do. There's like, you know, 30 or 1,000 fans there, what they're going to do. So it's, um, it's a big moment in like legitimizing the flags. So it's almost like football against fascism, but also against post-fascism as well, in terms of like, being able to legitimize this very important symbol for the Basque people. On Real and Barca, right? Um, mm. You talk, and, and Sid Lowe has talked about how, you know, there is nuance. We need to debunk the myth mm. a bit. But we saw even, I think it was last March and April, uh, Barcelona weaponizing the the period of, of Franco to call out Real Madrid uh, as as Franquistas, right? Is mm. there has there been you know another spark to politicize that rivalry since the the botched independence referendum, or do you still believe it's predominantly commercial nowadays? 
I think it's commercial to be honest. I mean, mm. when I was a student there, 96, 97 season in Barca, didn't even have a Spurs shirt sponsor. You know, right. I uh, remember Ronaldo yeah. season with Bobby Robson. They did, I think they have a Spurs shirt sponsor till the 21st century, actually. They had like um, and then a couple of charity UNICEF, ones. Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So um, that was kind of the purity of the shirt, and that was it, owned by owned by the fans, all that sort of thing. Um, I think back then, maybe that was before the, it still obviously it was globalizing in the 90s. That's when football really did globalize that mm-hmm. decade. But the now you'll see Barcelona and Madrid shirts everywhere in the world. Yeah. Um, and I just, yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon now. I think to, if you ask people in Barcelona this question, you may get a different reply. Um, people in Catalonia, anyone in Catalonia, probably for them, it does mean something. Uh, obviously, you always want to kick against the center, but, but ultimately, it is a global brand now. And so for many fans around the world, it's just probably just a, a sporting and commercial rivalry. Wouldn't necessarily, may have known a bit about the, the Catalan thing because they represent it obviously in the captain's armband and in the mm. away shirt sometimes. But ultimately, how much attachment would you have to that or even care about it? So, it's, mm. you know, it's, um, um, our, I mean, if you wanted authentic, it, was, it, it wasn't Catalan founded, as I mentioned before. Yes, it's come become this like beacon because it is the most potent symbol possibly of the entire region. Mm-hmm. I don't think of anything else that's as Catalan right. well-known abroad as, as FC Barcelona. So it's kind of, you can see why there's that attachment. And a club that hasn't been so commercialized, a club that you watched a lot while you were in Madrid was actually Rayo Vallecano on the other oh, yeah, side yeah, of yeah. the spectrum. Tell us a bit more about Rayo. Yeah. <laughs> so Rayo is this club from the southern um, suburb of Bajecas, which is kind of um, the working class area um, and they have always been in the either the Liga or, or kind of the second division um, second tier I should call it because they're always changing names in Spain um, but the they're quite interesting they, as a fan culture when I was there in the 90s they just started this of the Bucaneros their fan group which are like kind of like kind of make a lot of noise about you know on the stands about left wing issues and stuff Um they often at odds with their management. You know, um, and they've got a lovely three-sided stadium. <laughs> One end is like a wall. Um, and I think there's only about 15,000 capacity anyway, so it's really small and niche, but it's like the atmosphere that you get within that is, is quite something. Um, but they're quite an outlier, outlier within, in Madrid because obviously you've got the two giants of, of Madrid and Atletico as well. Atleti are... Um, have roots in the military in many ways because mm-hmm. um, they were athletic to Madrid. Um, part of the actually sister club of, of Athletic Bilbao, mm. Athletic Club de Bilbao, I should say, um, back in the day. That's why they were the red and white stripes. So, um, the, they merged with the um, Air Force team in the 40s. Um, and they, so they have that kind of, you know, they, they are not a left-wing club, shall we say, right. <laughs> whereas Rio is. So Rio, yeah. that's where Rio has a has a point of difference, I suppose, over those other two. Yeah. Kind of. And, I mean, I think we could go on for, for Spain for days. I mean, you wrote oh, you yeah. know, an entire dissertation about it, but going, you know, across to Portugal, mm. I think a lot of our listeners won't know nearly as much about that. And, you know, you postulate and tell a story about how Academica de Coimbra, this club, mm-hmm. which now I think lingers in, in the third division of, of Portugal, how they helped actually bring down the Salazar dictatorship. Um, yeah, I mean, there's some part of it. The um, So just for context, the Estado Novo, the new state, which is the dictatorship of Portugal between 1926 and its fall in the Condition Revolution of the uh, 25th of April 1974, they, um, that was kind of very kind of traditional, as I say, like right wing, it was kind of like technocratic dictatorship. And Salazar was, uh, you know, very traditionalist. He didn't like football because he thought it was a British importation. He didn't like the British because of some colonial spat in the 1890s. And it was, um, but going back to colonial things, people probably don't know, or maybe they do, um, that Portugal had a number of colonies in, this, um, in Africa. Um, obviously, it lost Brazil in the 19th century, but it still hung on to. Mozambique, Guinea, and Angola. Mm. And if in the 60s, there was a lot of independence movements going on. A lot of countries like UK and France, um, Netherlands, decolonizing. Um, but Portugal wasn't. It's was trying to hold on to these three. And they're kind of like trying to make it out like it's a big Lusophone family, aren't we? Great, we're all part of the same country. And that's where you get people like players like Eusebio and mm. Mario Coluna coming over and playing for Benfica and strengthening the national side and the, the club side. So, um, 
Benfica obviously twice European champions in the early, two, early 60s and Portugal gets to the semi-finals of the World Cup in 66 as well as they ever done uh, at that point the um, and still the um, but during this period if you're a student rather like Vietnam really and the Americans getting entangled there if you failed your exams you kind of got sent off like basically conscripted to go and fight for Portugal to against the um, kind of uh, uh, emerging independence movements and guerrilla forces that are going on in, in, in Africa. And a lot of the sort of African descent players from um, universities in, uh, in Portugal kind of defect in going back and fighting for their sort of homeland sort of thing. So it's quite an interesting period. Um, but there was student process across Europe in 1968. And that kind of involved students in Coimbra, which at this point is the old, well, one of the oldest universities in, in, in Europe, but also is... Um, got a, a team which is now professional i think professional since the 80s but like at the time they weren't so a lot of the students would play for academica and they were very strong and it was they got to their fourth um portuguese cup final in 1969 it's quite interesting because um the portuguese cup final is a massive deal mm. it's a bit like the fa cup final right. used to be here uh it's like a massive deal it's a big day out lots of people go to the stade de Jouhort, which is kind of um kind of the outskirts of kind of lisbon in the hills which is where uh celtic won the 1967 uh, European Cup final, so people might recognise that that's a concrete ball against Inter, yeah. And um, the excuse me, so two years later we have this this Cup final um, at the um, academic have seen what's happening with their students and to show kinship, um, they come on with these kind of dark gowns, so obviously like university students, and they walk really slowly, like they're carrying a coffin, you know, pallbearers at a funeral. Mm. This is meant to be the death of Portuguese like society and things like that. And this is on the back of lots of protests that they've been stopping the government accessing their campus and stuff. Um, now, a lot of tens of thousands of students come to Jamor for, you know, from Coimbra. It's only about an hour away on the train, I think, isn't it? It's quite close. But, um, you know, the police can't do anything about that, really. So they shut down the television presentation. By the way, Salazar himself has had a coma, uh, is in a coma at this point. I think he's had a, he's had a stroke or something. So his deputy's in charge. Um, and um, the... So they, they, a lot of the government don't turn up uh, for this, and it's on the radio. You can sort of hear it, and they take the lead actually with just nine minutes left. And if they'd won, it'd be amazing. And Benfica had been briefed that they would celebrate with them. And they kind of do actually. Benfica equalise. The keeper spills the ball um, uh, about four minutes later from a Eusebio free kick, and Simões pounces to, to, to equalise, and then Eusebio himself scores an extra time, which is, turns out to be the winner. But in the Mario Coluna help um, along with the. Um, Coimbra captain kind of like they lift the trophy together effectively. So, so, but basically this is seen as, I mean, I interviewed, interviewed a guy who wrote a film about this. Again, this is one of those stories you stumble across. You're just like looking around again, that wasn't really covered in English before. Um, and I interviewed him and about it. And it's just really fascinating because he wrote a film called football, to Cal- uh, football to Causes, football with a cause. You can find it on, uh, you know, the trailer at least on YouTube. And um, it's really interesting because he credits it with giving the Portuguese people kind of like, confidence you know basically how we can kick against this region which is on its way out a bit like franco we knew it's only a matter of, matter of time this guy's really old um and i think you know after he had died it's like where's the impetus of, sorry after he being salazar um had died when where was the impetus and things like that so carnation revolution happens in 1974 um very entertainingly the portuguese entry for the 1974 eurovision tournament which was won by abbas waterloo by the way um was the signal when they played it on the radio that was a signal for the military to go out in the street and kind of hold the coup so it's quite interesting it's really funny musical segue into that but um yeah they it's peaceful i don't think anyone would died or maybe one or two people but it's like pretty much bloodless coup and portugal's yeah it was just like that was the end of it and then frank of the year later but i mean it's a football isn't really that political in in portugal i've i, I spoke to a lot of people about it um they got a bit petty during the regime about the color red, as we find that in, a lot in Spain as well, because obviously red's associated with communism. So they asked Benfica to change their name from their nickname from, uh, oh, I think, Vermelhos, the Reds, uh, to Encarnados, the Scarlets, or something like that. So it's like, and then they refused to wear red against Spain. In Spain, they were burning Osasuna shirts, which are red, and also got very petty about the color red. And Spain played in blue during the Franco era until the late 40s, and they switched back to red. So. 
is not just Europe, right? I think where we no. have some of the the most, in a way, you know, fascinating instances are when we go down to, to South America, right? And we talk about, I mean, people will know 1978 World Cup under mm. under Menotti and and guided by mm. by Captain Passarella that that Argentina wins that World Cup under yeah. the eyes of of the military junta, right? But that mm-hmm. story is quite layered, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, 78 is just um, it's kind of just one of the many stories in South America. I think it's kind of well well covered. Um, yes, it's a great example of sports washing in many ways. Um, up there with many of the worst i think kind of if, if you the organizers kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place do you let this thing go ahead because argentina kind of as a country should have hosted it by then anyway um you know chile had hosted it in 62 so it was their turn in many ways it's kind of very difficult to say no but yeah it was a bit um as a tournament um there were little protests within it as, as i cover in the book um uh, most of it's even painting the foot of the um, of the goalpost black, for example, um, and there are stories about how, you know, students are being, um, you know, being tortured by the regime within earshot of the monumental. I could hear the celebrations and things like that, and they just everyone was so whipped up in the national fervor, they just knew that they couldn't get their voices heard, should we say, you know, during this period. But uh, if anything, it did sort of shine a light a little bit on it. You got some footballers that wanted to the mothers of the um, Plaza de Mayo, which is the the, the mothers have disappeared, and, the, uh, and the, um, but yeah, no, it's 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 a very interesting period. And the funny thing, uh, the funny thing, some, one of the things about Argentina is that Uruguay tried to copy the Uruguayan regime, still under it was also under dictatorship. Uh, in fact, more people per head of population were arrested in Uruguay, but it's got a lot smaller than Argentina um, during this period. But they had a little little World Cup, the Mundialito, two years later, hoping it would give them the bounce that the Argentina junta got from. Their World Cup, and in fact, it backfired entirely. And uh, if anything, they they faced protests in the stands, which didn't happen in Argentina. They weren't sort of protests; they were very much into the ticker tape, as you know. And it became it was a big, big national thing. But sometimes uh, these these events do shine a light on what's going on down there. Pinochet, uh, Pinochet uh, in Chile did realize this when he was using the Estadio Nacional as the as the national stadium, which was World Cup final stadium in 1962. Um, he used that as a detention center and uh, if anything, it shone a light on, you know, the Soviet Union refused to play there, which is ironic because their, their human rights record wasn't great either. But like, um, you know, that was an ideological choice, more than anything. But yeah, I mean, just goes to show when, whenever, you know, Scotland due to play a friendly there and it's like got some protests and things like that. So it's, it's you know, it was, um, it does kind of shine a light on, you know, just goes to show that, that football as a, as a thing, as a, as a platform can, can work two ways as a, um, you know, political tool. Mm-hmm. And, I think mindful mindful of where we are on time and knowing mm-hmm. where I'd actually like to to end where you actually start the book uh, in the prologue um we we hear often about you know uh against the the Nazi regime we hear about the 1936 summer olympics uh, very often mm-hmm. and I, mm-hmm. of course an area which is quite unexplored relative to that is you know, the football resistance uh, to these regimes. And in particular, you talk about the death match of 1942. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this is probably the most famous, or if it's not, I mean, um, you, everyone will know Escape to Victory, the, the film, I'm sure, with Pelé and and, uh, and uh, half the Ipswich Town team of 1970. But the, um, it's quite interesting. The That was based on this this real match, which actually happened in, in Ukraine, in Kyiv in 1942, which obviously was under... The Soviets and then the Nazis are invaded after they turned on the on the Russians with a view to taking Moscow quickly and, and didn't happen. So, but for a couple of years, you know, Ukraine was under Nazi rule, and obviously there's a lot of everyone knows about you know the pogroms that went on there. Um, but even the sort of local non-Jewish population were kind of oppressed and worked to death. And one um, of those a bakery team uh, called Start FC Start, which was founded out of left uh, you know, players from. Uh, Dinamo Kiev and Lokomotiva, which is the other team in Kiev. And um, they had a little league going on there, actually, to sort of distract people. So it's very much the bread and circuses kind of Roman style thing. So the occupiers were sort of helped distract the locals with some sport, you know. And um, the, I think um, uh, there was a, you know, there's a lot of myth that's came around, uh, that's come about after this, which was like, oh, they beat the Nazis and then the Nazis took them off and shot them. That was Soviet propaganda story, which a lot of people believed for a very long time. Um, 
but actually the reality what happened is, is that they they beat them once uh, this this Air Force team, and they said, "Oh, let's have a rematch then," and they beat them again. <laughs> Bear in mind that they're playing against the referee effectively, and they're you know they're obviously not as well fed as the the German officers either. But they still beat them five two. And um, the yes, four members of the team did eventually die in the weeks following that, but they're probably unrelated to the match itself. Uh, you know, the chances were they would have happened to them anyway, just by being whatever acts of resistance else they have to be doing or, you know, their association with the Communist Party or anything like that. So there's a lot of other reasons that those people died, but they've got statues and everything in Kiev. It's quite interesting um, as a story. And I think, Chris, we've we've gone on a, really a, a tour de force of uh, of the history of, uh, of football against fascism, the, the intertwining of football and politics. It's a topic... I'd love to to take forward with you and explore. Um, tell listeners where they can find you and uh, and your work. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm on outside right. That's W R I T E. So play on words. Co. Uk mm. and then outside right on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and also Blue Sky and Threads now, just because obviously it's all <laughs> it's a lot of social media going on. Um, and then the podcast, just just find it wherever you find your podcast. Really, football travel by outside right. Yes, and. His book, of course, we'll put a link in the show notes to uh, The Defiant, A History of Football Against Fascism, and his first book, Origin Stories, The Pioneers Who Took Football to the World. Uh, and, you know, next year, uh, or uh, when it comes out, to your third book. Yeah, yeah 2025. Um, and um, I will be able to talk more about that uh, in about a year or so. Fantastic. Well, Chris, thanks for your time today. It was uh, an absolute pleasure. No, thank you for having me on. Well, listeners, there you go. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I hope you learned something. I would love to hear your thoughts about it. Would love to hear if you want to have more of that content in the future on the Husman FC feed. Remember, you can learn more and dive deeper into the topics we discussed by checking out Chris's book, The Defiant, A History of Football Against Fascism, or following him also on Outside Right on any of the socials as well as his website. Thanks again, listeners. I'm Nicola Volpi. This is Hosman FC, an LIP production. Talk to you next time.